0: Uh, Dr. Stephen Radowitz, welcome. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So,
0: uh, yeah, you're you're involved in some really interesting stuff. Uh, I, I believe the topic we're going to talk about is, is mainly um, alcohol addiction and how alcohol addiction can be uh, treated possibly with, with ketamine therapy.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And we've been, uh, yeah, we've been we, we you know we started this center uh, about uh, it's getting going on almost uh, t- two years now and uh, initially you know mostly for mood disorders uh, depression you know tri- different, you know t- uh, treatment resistant depression anxiety OCD PTSD and within that a lot of people had co diagnoses of of uh, you know of alcohol use disorder and other um, uh, you know other uh, addiction issues issues with addiction and we found that people were doing really well you know. Those those issues, although they weren't our main focus, actually improved greatly when we start to treat some of the other treat people for the other issues uh, with uh, ketamine with our ketamine protocol. So, yeah,
0: and alcohol well. is a particularly difficult addiction. Uh, something I've been finding out more and more in, the, in recent years, and that you know that you know in the beginning when I first started working a lot with with addiction patients, it was mainly opioid addiction. And if you can get a person to start treatment, you know, medication assisted treatment with buprenorphine, yeah. they they do really well, especially, you know, if they stick with it, you know, that, that's the biggest battle is getting them started and getting them to to not be talked out of it by their family or friends or people on the street and whatever. But if yeah. they stick with it long term, they do unbelievably, incredibly well.
1: I agree. I treat people with buprenorphine. I have a number of patients I've been treating for years. And I think it's one of the wonder drugs, I have to say, one of the most amazing treatments out there I've ever seen. And I've had none of my patients revert if they have the support. The only time they have is someone people tell them, you know, they worry about being addicted to something else. But they have no. They, they. I've had a chief of police who was shot and and uh, you know and and ended up getting addicted to sleeping uh, to um, uh, o- uh, opiates through that, and then eventually had to buy them on the street. He's been clean for years, back to his life, doing incredible. At a art dealer, a woman, you know, was an art dealer. Who did well? Just amazing, amazing, amazing uh, transformations with that medicine. So yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah, yeah, the success stories are are really incredible, and um, and now we're hearing so many uh, great things about psychedelic therapy and uh, you know treating PTSD and Academy has like a a whole list of things that it can help with. Um, I think it's depression, OCD, uh, PTSD. Um, There's a whole list of of things, and um, I hadn't really seen alcohol listed before, but that's it's really intriguing because it's so difficult. You know, there there, are, there is a list of medications we can use and a, different approaches with alcoholism, but uh, people just seem to, they, they get off of it and they do really well and then they go back to it. And it's like, it's frustrating.
1: Right. I mean, alcohol, I think the issue is it's so part of our culture. You know, it's accessible. It's been legal for years. It's even in a lot of our even religious ceremonies, it's part of that. And I think it's just the... It's part of the way we socialize, the way we relax. So it's, a, and people don't see it as a drug and it's not mend. it's not, it's always like, listen, when we do our medical, even my medical intakes, you know, we do, you know, drugs and then alcohol is a separate thing where a drug is, you know, alcohol is a drug and one of the most significant drugs out there that we have, if you think about it, if I took a pill and gave you the same effects of alcohol, I mean, I would say like, that's a pretty crazy drug, you know, but again, we're socialized. We have different, t- we've, you know, we've made alcohol so accessible. Now, you, you know, you have those, Uh, those drinks. Now you don't even taste the alcohol in them. They're just these sort of seltzers, all those uh, um, hard seltzers, you know, it's like, so insulin, it's great for children too. You know, it's flavored. You don't taste the alcohol. So I think it's a big uh, issue. So, and the reasons I think, you know, all those things when you talk about how ketamine and and psychedelics are used for so many different things, I think there's a common source, a common seed to all these different um, conditions and I think we we tend to think of them as a separate uh, entity when they're just sort of symptoms. I don't see depression, anxiety, PTSD as disease processes. There's never been found, like, there's no gene for these things. There's no gene, although people would argue with me, like, about even addiction. I think for most people, it's just a way of coping. It's not a disease in and of itself. Um, but there's so much shame placed on that. Like, I am a depressive. I am, a, I am you know all these things that we we label people with its disease we 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 pathologize it and then we don't listen to them and it's just like you know like pain is pain a disease if someone breaks a leg you know and, and and there's a bone out of alignment is pain a disease no the pain's just a messenger saying hey you know fix it there's a bone out of alignment you know let's put something let's do something about it but what we do is we just load people up with pain medications and say okay continue walking on the leg and eventually, you know, you can walk on it and you know that something's off and you might need more and more of the pain medication, the morphine to, to keep on functioning. And eventually you're going to have to deal with it. The same thing with depression and anxiety. They're just symptoms that are letting you know that there's a sort of, a, I call it a psycho-spiritual misalignment. That we're not living our life in alignment with where we want to be or where we want And different things will s- sort of jolt us out of alignment. Uh, different, uh, you know, could be different life situations, uh, uh, traumas, whatnot, that could jolt us out of alignment, but those things are not there that we don't want to suppress them. We want to listen to them. Of course, there's a place, you know, when someone has a broken leg, you know, we have to take some pain medications, get them in, put a cast on, and then once the leg is healed, the pain goes away because it's no longer necessary. The same thing with those with, uh, but what we do is we numb, we use alcohol or or different substances, summing through Instagram for hours, watching porn. Uh, All these things are just ways of escaping, of, of sort of trying to not listen to those difficult messages that we're, you know, when we're not ready to make the changes in our life. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I yeah
0: it makes sense. I and mean, it does seem like all these things, this list of things that psychedelics and ketamine can help with it. There, there does seem to be like, probably like a unified theory behind it all. Like like even chronic pain and yeah. depression and addiction, you know, that they're you know, maybe all, all like different sides of the, this 12 sided coin or whatever, you know, like, you know that mm-hmm. they're just all like somehow related in the brain of, of how and and they're not exactly the same I mean a perf- a person could have chronic pain and not have an addiction at all um but uh you know there does there does seem to be a connection and, and yet also all of these conditions you know uh, in, in fact bipolar um you know even migraines I think ketamine can help with migraines also um but there's a lot of stigma with a lot of these things you know like like someone you know could be having a an episode with being bipolar and someone says well you know, snap out of it. You know, just just stop it already. You're just looking for attention. You know, mm-hmm. or maybe even with a migraine, it's like you know, come on, it's a headache. You know, take an Advil. And I was like, well, no, that doesn't work. Um, but uh, you know, so so there's uh, that's one thing that I think all these these different conditions have in common is the, the stigma and the misunderstanding of um, you know that these are real things that people are are suffering with,
1: and the shame. I think the big problem with I think addiction is like people get labeled as I'm an addict. You know, and and this is who I am. And, and, and there's a shame. So, and it's always a fight against, because, well, if I'm an addict and I'm, you know, so it's, all, you're always trying to become something you're not, if that's who I, def- how I define myself. So I drink, I try and prevent myself from drinking, but really I'm an addict, right? <laughs> so every time I'm not drinking, I'm not really being myself. Uh, I don't buy that whole thing. I think you're a pure, beautiful soul that's using alcohol, like someone would use Instagram to them through, or porn or gambling, or when it, any of these other things, To it's just a tool that you use. And the question is, do you have to ask yourself, is it, is it serving you? Is it really helping you in the long run? Or is it suppressing you? That's the only thing you need to ask. And once we get out of this whole mindset of I am that disease, I am the pain, I am the, 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 the drug addict or the alcoholic, then we can work with you. Then, you know, then it's, it's a process. And it's okay, let's find some other tools that you can use that are healthier, that work for you better. Than the alcohol, but you're not bad because you drink. You're not a bad person. It's just that's what you've been taught. Some people, you know, grew up in a house where that's what that was the tool that that they were exposed to, and that's where they go to 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 numb themselves. And it's and that's what we see everywhere. So how could we get to a place where that where the alcohol or these addictions are no longer necessary? That they don't serve you. And that's what we've been seeing with the psychedelics is that people once they're open, they reveal, they get a touch a taste of who they are. realize it's just not necessary anymore like there's other ways you can be high without without a substance (laughs) you know you can be yourself and it's all so yeah
0: yeah definitely um now that's one thing that really stands out you know with your approach that i and i don't know if i if i fully um maybe can talk about this a little bit um that i i've seen that there's ketamine centers that they really focus on on just administering ketamine you know they say you know we're we've been doing ketamine forever, you know, or administering it to people forever. And, you know, we make sure it's done properly and medically correctly. You know, we put the IV in the right way with nurses and anesthesiologists and everybody gets their ketamine infusion and the, there's brain growth and brain development and all these improve physical improvements and healing. Um, but, but some of these places don't do therapy on site. You know, they're like, well, yeah, therapy is important, but go find yourself a therapist. And then there's other places that, that integrate the therapy, which seems like a good idea to me to have have on-site therapy but it seems like like your approach is to also integrate spirituality which i i don't think i've heard before and that that seems like a really good idea
1: right yeah no i mean i think my take is a little more when we talk about spirituality or mystical because a lot of you know in psychedelics a lot of the experiences are described as, as sort of mystical it's hard to explain we just don't have a words to describe or the science to describe it. i think it's just a science you know when you talk about a soul or or mystical experience. I think it's just a science. We're not, we just haven't discovered yet. We don't have ways of measuring in our current state. We're not that advanced. We think we're so smart. We're not so smart. (laughs) We're just, we're, we're, we're children trying to, you know, just sort of discovering this. It's like, you know, if I took an iPhone and and showed someone, I, I brought it back in time, 150 years, they'd look at that as a mystical device. They couldn't even handle seeing it. It would be too, it would frighten them. The same thing with some of these experiences that people come up, although we're much more open to understanding right now, you know, we see an iPhone and we, we know, we don't exactly know how it works, but we just accept it. It's the same thing with mystical experience. I think we're more open today to to accept or to, you know, understand that we we might not, there is an understanding. We just don't get it now, but maybe we will at some point in the future. So I think that it's important to, Maybe believe or be open to things that we just don't quite understand, and, but that there's a bigger picture. and that's spirituality to me is a sort of this interconnectedness. It doesn't necessarily mean religious. people often associate uh, spirituality and mysticism with religion. and there could be and it's a nice when it's balanced and some people find their way through religion. and I think that's amazing. Um, there's other people who don't, but it doesn't mean you can't be spirit, you know you can't uh, use the power of, of of these spiritual experiences to help heal. I oh yeah you know.
0: yeah I agree i mean spirituality uh is a real thing whether what whatever the the substrate of it is where it exists i mean whether it's you know magical from our point of view or not um you know that there there could be centers in the brain that that are spiritual that require to be fed you know just like you know we have to to feed you know we have to feed ourselves we have to breathe you know people have have needs and they have spiritual needs wh- whether that's um you know supernatural or or not and um you know it's like you said, you know, with the, with the phone analogy, you know, like, like I could be sitting in, in the couch in the living room. And my, one of my kids looks up and says, Oh, mommy's almost home. Like, how'd you know that? Well, she texted me like, well, right. I mean, from my point of view, it looked like you just cycle, you know, psychically magically knew she was almost home. Yeah, but, um, but yeah, I mean, so we don't know like what the technology is. I mean, you know, you see, um, you know, birds flying in formation. It's like, how do they know like where to place themselves? And, you know, maybe there's a mathematical, um, explanation or physiological thing or physics or whatever but um but yeah I mean someday we may fully better understand you know what spirituality is and why why we we have these experiences but um but yeah I mean just right now I mean we have access to some of this you know like they're now um what what is it psilocybin is is being talked about as becoming um legal and decriminalized in some areas and and I guess that they've used it with end-of- life patients to to, to allow them to to feel better about, you know, wh- where
1: they're going. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. You get to a place where you sort of stand outside of yourself and you realize that there's a part of us that's that that pre-existed, <laughs> that existed before we were here and, and will exist afterwards. You you step. Yeah. And I think you get that with ketamine as well. Or, and a lot of these psychedelics is you get a bigger picture of of your essence. I, I always see that, I see all these psychedelics, no matter what they are, as, as different keys to your, your ego, to your mind, to this brain. And it, just a dimmer switch. I'm not trying to kill the ego. The ego is a sort of, I see the brain and the ego is sort of as, as the same, the synonymous, um, they're just, you know, they're here to help protect us, help us exist in this world. The problem with humans is that we want to do more than just exist, we want to live. An existing our chair or rock exists, it's heavy. It just, it's you know, just exists. But humans, we have this desire to to have, to give purpose to life, to have meaning, to have joy, to have love, to have you know, to appreciate the interconnectedness of life, and that's and that's what that's what makes us light, boys, and allows us to remain upright and and walk rather than be on the ground <laughs> as a heavy corpse. And uh, and it's always about that balance. We always have to have that balance. I think that's the key in this world is to find and we and that's always. It's a tricky thing. It's like you ever take two magnets of opposite polarity and sort of put them on top of each other. Yeah. you want to touch. They sort of repel each other. Right. But if you get a nice like amount of pressure, they sort of hover. They have like float over it. It's very sort of satisfying. And um, so uh, I, I think that it's like all of those, you know, those magnetic lev- levitation trains uh, in oh, Asia. Yeah. They work on that concept. Like the the trains float over the track you know, and the track has an opposite polarity to the train. But if, you know, if the the train was too heavy, you know, too much existence, too much ego, the train was too heavy, it touches the track, you don't go anywhere. It's like too much friction. The train was too light, too much magnetism, you know, it flies off the track, too much spirituality, too much, you know, living and not enough existing. We can't survive in this world too. But when you find a nice balance, like a nice equilibrium between these two forces, there's no friction. That's grace. That's where you just you know, you just go through life and it's, that's what it is. It's just life. It's just this constant, you know, almost like a fluctuation between these two forces and trying to find a nice balance between them. And uh, yeah. So I think that's where psychedelics come in. It's like, it's sort of, it lowers the, the, the effects of this existence (laughs) maintaining machine, this ego decrease. And then you get a more of an, uh, 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 an access to this unbelievable power of of our essence of our soul or whatever you want to call it. (laughs) And, and the creativity and the new ways of thinking and the openness and the eterni- this eternal nature of it. And then when the mind comes back online, hopefully there's a better balance. you know we've, we've rebalanced uh, you know, and that's the key without needing alcohol to do it or And I think people use all these substances as sort of to, as a way to rebalance that. When you do when you drink, there is a sort of a, a removal of, of, of yourselves. In a certain way, or smoke marijuana, you you're getting away from the the overthinking. The problem is it's sort of more suppressive. It's not really enhancing who you are, it's suppressing. Where I think psychedelics is about enhancement. It gives you access, it gives you uh, a taste of our essence for a period yeah. of time. Yeah. So
0: yeah, it's yeah, it's really um interesting. Now now alcohol, um uh it's kind of like like heroin in a way. In fact, well, heroin is probably a safer drug, you know, if you had you know, medical controlled, regulated, measured, and you know exactly how much you had. Um, Alcohol is a really, uh, you know, dangerous drug is a harmful drug, you know, even when you know exactly where you're getting it from, and and what percentage of alcohol, there's no good amount of alcohol for anyone. Um, Now, as far as like someone who wants to get get off of alcohol, or they, you know, they realize, like, you know, maybe this isn't good for me, you know, I'm, I'm, um hearing I'm living in, for example, living in New York City, and there's all these, you know, great, I could be seeing Broadway shows, I could be walking through Central Park, um, you know, doing all these fun, great things. I mean, it's such a great place. But instead, they're sitting in a bar, sitting in their house, just drinking day after day and, you know, drinking their, their life away. And and at one point, maybe they they have an awakening, uh, or at least a, um, you know, a thought about it, you know, like, maybe, maybe I need to try something different. And, you know, they're, they become aware somehow, maybe the listening to us on this podcast, they become aware that there's a new shaman down the street, you know, maybe I can call and make an appointment. Now, suppose a person is drinking every day, you know, they're drinking morning and night, they, you know, they, they don't want to have a hangover. So they drink in the morning, and they just keep drinking through the day. Um, now, there's something that, that I, I see called the KARE protocol. Like, like, protocol. Yeah, what, so what, what does that mean? What happens when someone calls? What's it, like the next step from that first phone call? Right, so the care
1: protocol was developed um, out of Exeter University in uh, in uh, the UK. And um, Cecilia Morgan and David Nutt, they uh, created a program that uses, uh, that combines uh, these psychedelic experiences, ketamine uh, infusions, or I am ketamine treatment with intensive um, psychotherapy. So people, so if someone, let's say someone was interested in um in our program, what they do is they would uh, first call our center. We have a nurse who uh, will do the initial intake. They'll go through a number of um, of uh, uh, sort of an intake to find out number one, their level of uh, acuity, how like how much they're drinking. Is there any risk of going into withdrawal? Should they stop? Because people have to be clean and be able to stop drinking for about two days before they enter our program without going into al- acute alcohol withdrawal. So if we determine that there is a risk of withdrawal, we might uh, refer them to a, a detox center, a detox program, and we have a number of detox programs that we uh, we have relationships with that we can refer to, or they can go through their own uh, way. And once they've, you know, they're stable and they can be clean, you know, they can be off of alcohol for two days without any withdrawal symptoms, then they would um, set up an appointment with myself um, to do a medical, like a psychiatric and medical intake. And we go through their, you know, very detailed uh, history of their uh, their medical history, psychiatric history, alcohol or substance use history, and make sure that number one, this is a good option for them and a safe option for them. Once they're cleared through me, then they would um, they would be assigned to a psycho a therapist, a psychotherapist, who would develop a relationship with them. They would have. Um, at that point they would set up before they start the program they have up to 4 30 minute they're called support calls where they sort of optimize get them ready we we send them these uh there's sort of workbooks almost to set, you know explain them the program um go over their their past history go over some of their um you know some of their triggers some of the issues that sort of led up or their their reasonings for maybe using alcohol and then some uh, some ex- exercises to do. So we get them optimized. And then once they are optimized for the program, we set them up for their first treatment. Each uh, treatment, uh, there's three treatment days for them. And each treatment day involves uh, 60 minutes of psychotherapy, which is also, we, it's not just psychotherapy going into their past, but also mindfulness techniques. And we give them tools and and ways that they can use, ways to deal with their triggers. And those are tools that they can use to sort of redirect when they, you know, some people, we don't wanna just take away the alcohol and they're not replaced with anything else. We want, you know, sometimes people need, they're not using alcohol as they want to, obviously, they're using it because they feel they need to. So what could we do to replace uh, the, the you know, alcohol with something else that's healthier, whether it's mindfulness uh, techniques. Uh, exercise, uh, you know, different types of other techniques. So once they do that, they have a 60 minute uh, pre sort of preparatory um, session. Then they go into a, there's um, uh, 60 minutes of ketamine, the IV ketamine treatment. And then another hour afterwards for sort of, uh, they do a very short integration and just uh, ease people out of the experience. And then a day or two later, they do another, um, what's called an integration a psychotherapy session, uh, that's 60 minutes that's done by Zoom uh, the day after. We repeat that three times, three weeks in a row. And then there's a fourth week where there's no dosing of medicine. There's just a, a continuation, a sum up, a summation of what they did with a psychotherapy session. And uh, that's the, the general program, the care program. This has been studied, well studied, and and it was shown at six months to have about an 86% um, um, uh clean, like the six, 86% of the people who went through the program were clean at six at, uh, six months, which is pretty amazing. I mean, that's half so- of that is amazing. Yeah,
0: the 86% is huge. I mean, that's- uh, I was in yeah. their
1: study protocols, you know, in a very structured study program, how much we're really following, we're following that study protocol every day. Like they also for each week, they also get workbooks and there's very specific, there's work, they're very much involved in the program. So we, we really stick to the, the structure of that program. And hopefully we'll have the same. I, 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 I think those are re- those are reachable rates. I really do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's um. so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize that that, that was a, um, a studied and established protocol, like separate from, from your, your clinic, you know, cause there, there may be different clinics that, that say, well, we do a little therapy here and there, but, but you're, you're doing like in a, something that's, that's proven. And, um, you know, and that's uh, and, and it sounds very extensive. So, so is there just to go back to what you're saying, is there, there's definitely a therapy and integration therapy the day after and, and extensive for like a full hour. Uh, yeah. Did you say that there's also some therapy? Is there any therapy done during the actual ketamine treatment?
1: So, you know, that's very important. So, they are there is a therapist in the room that sits in with them, but there's different ways of doing cat, you know, that you know. Ketamine could be administered in two different ways. There's what's called CAP or ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, and then there's ketamine-assisted therapy. The difference between it is that some people use a psycholytic, so a lower dose, usually done given in lozen- with lozenges, uh, oral uh, or nasal spray, and they get people into sort of a uh, sort of an altered state, but not a psychedelic state. And the psychotherapist might work when they're in these sort of more relaxed states. They do some psychotherapy during. During those sessions, we don't take that approach, uh, Nushama. We do more of the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, uh, therapy, the therapy where we we give them a psychedelic dosing, so it's a higher dose, and it's a very inward experience, a very personal experience. They're wearing an eye mask, earphones with music, and this is more of the traditional psychedelic type therapy where people um, get the answers. They go, you wouldn't want to talk to someone during those treatments, in, and. Yeah. In it's just not a place and i think a lot of the answers come from within and we wouldn't want to interfere with that process as they're going deep and so we wait until after they're done so we do the therapy before and a little bit of integration after they're fully out of the experience and then we try to make sense of some of the things that come up during their journeys um yeah
0: okay what 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 is um and, and i see that you actually have on the website i was looking through the the, the staff, you know, meet, you know, meet everybody. And there's a lot of people there that do different things, which is great. Um, someone I saw there has a position of being an, an integrationist. Um, yeah. what, what does an integrationist do exactly? Like what does integration mean?
1: We have a coach. They have a coaching, you know, a, you know, degree green coaching life coaching, it's really to hold space. You know, I think the whole idea of, of uh, you know, after uh, Kenny, we're not here to do a lot of people come in with their own psychotherapists, um, or their own uh, psychiatrist. So they're already seeing a mental health thing. So we're not here to interfere with that process for, for most people. We're here just to hold space, to have a, a safe place where people could, um, number one, we can uh, to help them prepare for the journey. You know, So we give them mindset, set their mindset, work on their intentions of what they want to get out of it so it's not really yeah. going back and doing therapy and then after the experience to sort of make sense of what comes up try and take what comes up in the, in in the in during the journeys and 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 reframe frame it in a way that they can use it in their day-to-day life so we're not doing it's not about going back necessarily and going a deep dive into their you know into their past or it's more about presence it's more about bringing into a presence and using and and helping them sort of integrate the experiences into their everyday life so yeah
0: yeah I mean I I think a really great thing about that approach is um you know that, that when they talk about the the physical brain healing effects of of ketamine you know they talk about how there's dendritic growth you know the connections between neurons will will grow and you you get new connections forming and and it sounds like a great thing it's like well my my brain is healing it's growing connections are forming um but I actually uh, on the podcast had a brain scientist from Rutgers University, and we talked about that, about dendritic growth, and he said, well, well, that's how addictions form also. It's not right. always a good exactly. thing. It should be guided, you know, guided in a positive way to get the right outcome. Um, right. So it makes sense that, that during that physical healing phase with, with the ketamine, that you're also helping to guide it with the proper mindset.
1: 100%. And I think and you have to see, it's just not not just the ketamine, it's also what you do afterwards, is it? you're really, it's not like you sit back, and you're going to have this infusion of ketamine, and everything's going to be okay. It doesn't work that way. It's a very active process, and 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 people are part of that process. And for really for it to work, you have to reprogram. So when you're opening up, there's a sort of neuroplastic process. You're opening up the your 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 state of mind. The brain is more open. You're removing. You're changing the dendritic connections, or you know whatever it is you want to say. We and as much as we think we know, we don't know all of it. You know these are yeah. just a lot of it is theories. But um, but you want to reprogram with something new. If you, know, if you go back to living your life the exact same way as you did before, you're just going to go back to your default and all those little dendrites are just going to go and reform. Or form. Or if you go into worse behaviors, they're just going to reform into bad behaviors. So we try yeah. and encourage people, we call it like aftercare, psychedelic aftercare. It's like doing things that are more in alignment with where you want to be. You know, whether it's meditation, doing yoga, uh, picking up some spirituality, you know, getting into some spiritual practice. We, we recommend books to people. We... Um, uh, forming community, I think community is very important. You know, where you're joining a community, whatever that means to people. You know, finding the ways to live your life in a more aligned, in more aligned. So the all the like the alcohol or, or the the depressed thoughts or the or the or the addiction issues are no longer necessary. They just don't see you realize they don't serve you. There's a better way. Yeah, and that's that's and, and we're seeing I think very good because of that. I think we see better outcomes. A lot of the studies that were done out there uh, with ketamine we're looking really at the ketamine as a drug itself like they were tra- they were taking out all those other factors they want to see does this substance you know treat depression and so they would remove all there was like often there you know some of them did have some integration but most didn't even the music was very you know limited and cuz they didn't want to interfere they just want to see is this compound responsible for the outcome but I think uh you know if you really put some more work into it I think the outcomes and they still had some good outcomes you know there are some centers where they're going to give a drip we know a lot of the we know of them a uh, number of them where they you know that's how they see it it's just a slit it's a drug you come in they don't even ask they don't know music they line a stretcher and that's it which could be very traumatic to be honest with you I mean've I've done you know these Journeys and uh I think it's important the music is a huge part of it and the, and the eye mask and the integration so but but um I think that experience is a, is, is more important actually than the ketamine itself. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: mean, yeah. Ketamine is essentially anesthesia. I mean, it's a, you know, yeah,
1: Yeah, it's like a, it's a light switch. It's a switch. It's just uh, an experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way I, I sometimes think of it is that you have, you know, normally you get anesthesia when you're getting surgery or a procedure, like colonoscopy or your wisdom teeth pulled out or whatever. And, um, when you get anesthesia just for the sake of getting anesthesia, it's kind of like a, a cruise to nowhere, you know, you That's get on the cruise ship, but there's no destination. You're just kind of floating around out there. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's nice to to actually go somewhere, um, yeah. you know, and, and be guided to like, you know, go to a nice place too. So sounds like, like purpose
1: behind it sounds like, you know, like there has to be intentional yeah. purpose. It's interesting. I was listening to this, you know, Johan Hari, you ever listened to his book, The Lost Connections? So oh, I no. Noticed- Book. Okay. And he just, actually, there's a Ted talk. I encourage people to look it up a uh, Ted talk, Johan Harry on addiction on, you know, we've been getting, I think I forgot that the, the, the uh, what the, the, um, the actual uh, name of the, uh, the, the lecture it was something like, we got all addiction all wrong or whatever. You'll see Johan Harry addiction in Ted talks. And uh, he talked about this. There was this old, um, this, this experiment with, with rats. Where they would give them like they put in the water they put some heroin in the water uh, and they found there was just a plain cage with a rat and heroin and they gave him another water and they and of course the hair the 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 rat would go and 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 keep on you know self-dosing the heroin until it died okay but there was nothing else in the cage and someone said you know maybe there's something else like why you know, in, in in real life, you know, some people have had pain, or they, you know, they're given morphine. Not everyone becomes an addict from doing, you know, uh, from one dose of, of of morphine, of course. And morphine can be more intense than heroin in certain way, in, in you know, than purified heroin. So they did they did another experiment where they had this cage with all these amazing, like, purposeful uh, exercise wheels and things that rats love to do. You know, other other things, you know, that gave them more purpose. And in that experiment, the rats did not go to the morphine that much. They actually went and they were more involved with the food and the other things that were, were keeping them purposeful, you know? And I think that's the right. I think a lot of people go to addictions because they're looking not, it's just because there's a lack of maybe purpose or the lack of other options in their life. And they're using, it's not the addiction themselves. And if we created more, you know, there's more community, more uh, other, issue in you know, other ways of, of living our life or, or living more in alignment we wouldn't go to those things as much it wouldn't be necessary so i don't yeah. i think it's, yeah it's an interesting uh, ted talk i recommend yeah
0: that, that's uh I, I think i've heard about that the rat things the thing where the rats socialize and they don't really need the drug anymore because they're getting a, a fulfilled life
1: exactly no? they won't so yeah,
0: very good <laughs> it it reminds me that you know there was a I I don't remember I don't know if I'm remembering it exactly right, but there was an experiment in the '60s where they they worked with LSD and and prisoners, and the um the outcome of the experiment was that they had a hundred percent success rate. None of the prisoners that they worked with went back to prison, but people who criticized the experiment said, "Well, you know, you, you guys formed a relationship with the prisoners. You helped them. You helped them find jobs. You you looked after them." And it's like, "Well, how's that? How's that cheating?" I mean, that's uh. You know, who who thought the drug itself by, all by itself was going to solve the problem? Um, it was 100%. the drug plus, plus extensive connections, relationships, and ongoing support.
1: 100%. He talks about that in that TED Talk also, about the need. And, you know, instead of labeling, like we label addicts, you know, they're bad, and we punish them. We put them in jail. And instead of that, we don't rehabilitate. They don't have purpose. We gave them, and in this study, actually Portugal, he talked about the, how in, uh, in Portugal, they had a big drug problem. So you know what they did is they just legalized all drugs, everything. There's no, like they decriminalized all drugs, heroin included. They decriminalized, but they also at the same time give program for people who became addicted. They gave them pro, they, they would help give them micro loans to help them get jobs. Like They they didn't stigmatize them for their use. And a lot of these people didn't go back and their drug rates actually went down after that. You know, it just tells you that it's not the drug itself. It's our purpose. We need purpose, community you know connections that's that's the real key to all this and i and i think psychedelics open us up to this interconnectedness that's when we talk about spirituality what is spirituality it's an acknowledgement that we're all connected and we strive for that that's where we're trying to go back to that's what spirituality is and once we have that we're not going to need those other things when we feel you know it's only when we disconnected yeah we
0: that's 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 a great way to define spirituality it's very straightforward and simple like where you don't really have to think about is it real is it supernatural no it's just connection between people being a part of something and being um connected and, and and accepted having relationships um you know it's it's you know it's, it's a real thing and, and it's something that people need you know people can't really survive isolated
1: no more so than ever i think covid highlighted that like the whole pandemic you know and yeah so i uh, yeah, you read about quantum if anyone wants to know about science we do have a scientific model for quantum for spiritual you know read about quantum physics Ever read books on quantum physics there's easy books yeah. on it i mean you feel like you're reading a spiritual novel it's like it's it creeps out the, even the the physicists who who know the theory this is you know the way things work and how the interconnectedness between all all matter it's all one you know so it's it's yeah. fascinating so
0: yeah, yeah, it's definitely interesting. You know, you know the idea that we might all be living in a simulation and and then, you know, you think that's well, that's just a matrix. That's just like uh, crazy people believe that. But then, you know, legitimate scientists, you know say, well, it could be. you know, there there's some things that point towards that, you know, right. some unusual coincidences that point mm-hmm. that direction,
1: but I think it's an important, I think it, you know, even if it is a matrix, I think there's a purpose to this matrix. I think there. And and that's where, you know, religion came in to fill some of those holes. And, you know, that that uh, that I think there is something good about all this, even if it is a matrix. It's okay. Yeah. Sort of a game and almost like a movie for our our soul to experience things, to witness things, to to live out, you know, try and figure out what it is (laughs) by sometimes what it's not. You know, so. Yeah,
0: Yeah. definitely. So. um... Can you tell me tell me a little bit about yourself? Like, how did you what what brought you to uh, to Nishama and and ketamine therapy the, hair protocol? Like, like, what brought you to where you are today?
1: Yeah, so years ago, I, I you know I went to medical school and went into internal medicine because I loved. I always wanted to know how things work. I was <laughs> very you know more structural. And, uh, as I got into medicine, I started to see, you know, things aren't so, you know, science that can explain everything. There's actually a beautiful art <laughs> to, to, to the, the, to medicine as well. Um, I worked, uh, I worked, I had the option, you know, I, had, I was, I'm Canadian. Um, I worked at an inner city hospital to get my green card and I got to work with uh, a lot of uh, very difficult, you know, difficult situations. I worked at, I was a medical director of a heroin and alcohol detox unit. Worked with uh, sort of inpatient uh, um, uh, in an AIDS unit, and I saw you know a lot of very different, interesting uh, experiences. Um, during that time, I also studied. Some one of my patients gave me a book on Jewish mysticism, like Kabbalah. You know, he wasn't even Jewish, so <laughs> yeah, you should read this book. And I was going through you know maybe a little bit of a difficult personal uh, issue at the time, and I started reading this, and it was like that was my real psychedelic experience. It let me see the world in a very beautiful way it was like my spiritual openness and I didn't grow up so much religious at all you know traditional but not religious and um and that just took me on a whole tangent away from from this sort of more mechanic mechanistic view of medicine I start to see patterns and the way people's consciousness and thought actually manifest not only in, in meant in their mental health but also their physical health and um I had this one woman, a beautiful woman who is, I can think of too much information. She was one of the people who, this, who discovered, who started Sesame street and she, uh, she had developed a cancer, um, very like an inoperable stage four cancer. And she went to this, this retreat, like I, I guess a psychedelic retreat that was legal somewhere in Arizona. So it was the craziest thing she ever did. And, um, and they told her after like six months she had a shaman and everything and the shaman told her in six months you're gonna be you're gonna be cured and she said okay and she's a very spiritual woman herself six months later i have the chart to prove it i kept i have no paper charts this chart i kept um she completely cured cancer completely gone completely gone you don't survive that she did also she did treat herself with chemotherapy things but you don't survive this type of cancer and um and I was like amazed by that. And I started doing more research on that and saw the power of the mind. And it was really her mind, actually, you know, it wasn't just the the, the psychedelic Actually, because her husband developed cancer years later and did the same ceremony. And he didn't, it didn't do anything for him. And she told me that he just wasn't, he didn't believe. And he did it because she did it, but it was her belief. She said, I really believed in this treatment. Like I really believed in it and the power of the mind and, and the, you know, to, to, to heal is incredible. So, um, you know over co I, you know I, I, my you know my partner uh, started developing um headaches after first son was born and um we didn't know we tried everything sinus surgery to acupuncture to medicines and everything nothing worked so we were introduced to a, um, a sort of a psychedelic retreat where they used this different agents and during the retreat it came up that exactly where this where the the source of the headaches were it was like a trauma and it was shown and the headaches completely dissolved went away off treatment everything and i'm like whoa okay this is very powerful and this is about a year before covid hit and over covid one of the people you know i i met there um decided to start one of these uh, this center and uh and i said you know what i just felt it was right i saw that you know this coming this I, I knew there was going to be an epidemic of mental health issues, uh, this, you know, sort of loneliness and, and and detachment over the COVID. And I felt like I needed to do something different. Um, also during my, you know, as a doctor, as an internist, I also saw the overuse of, of a lot of antidepressants. And I stopped sending to my, my patients who are a lot of psychiatrists because they come back on four or five different medications and sort of numb to life. You know, they'd be put on an SSRI, uh, uh, an antipsychotic uh, uh, a stimulant like Adderall. And then they'd be put on a, you know, they couldn't sleep at night. So they had to take a benzodiazepine, like a, you know, Valium or something at night. And then uh, a mood stabilizer, like Methyl. They were on, like most of them were on five different medications. And you look at them and there was like, you look in their eyes and there was like, there was nothing there. It was black, black. I'm like, there's something wrong. This is not right. So I started taking care of my own patients for a while. If they needed antidepressants, I would put them on, you know, but I would take them off it at some point. Like I would also encourage them to do meditation, to do yoga, to talk about, I would talk about spirituality, whatever that meant to them and started to, you know, guide them towards other things. And I saw really good results and, and I saw the it just really aligned with the type of work uh you know i saw through ketamine and through psychedelics i can really help people do really be a primary care doctor and that's what i am you know i into i want to get to the seed of disease and i felt this is this is my way and i feel i mean i've been doing this for about two years now and it's really special it's it's humbling does it work for everyone no but i think it's it works more than better than i expected to if people are open to it and um it's. Uh, I think it's the future, but if it's done well, and, and and we're also learning. I'm learning every day. I walk into Haitian's room. I humble myself to know that, like, it's different every time, and every every experience is different, and every member that comes here is different, and you just have to be open to what uh, what their what comes up. So yeah, yeah, yeah. The
0: way the way you you just described it, it, it reminds me of the uh, the story of of Stone Soup. You know the you know, the person said, you know, let's make soup, but all we have is a stone and that's going to make the whole soup. And they're like, oh, we have these other ingredients. Let's throw a little bit of this in and a little bit of that vegetables and seasoning and whatever. And and next thing you know, like, like it, it tastes delicious, but, uh, you know, you start out, you know, like maybe ketamine is the stone and, you know, not that it's not doing anything, but it's, it's maybe uh, like a starting point, but by mm-hmm. itself, you know, it's not going to make a very, uh, flavorful or pleasant soup. But, but now when, once you put all these other things in the, uh, therapy and spirituality and connection and, and, and all, all these different kinds of guidance. And, um, plus I love that. There's like, you know, some real science, you know, i I mean, you know, this is all, all real stuff, but there's like yeah. solid science there too, the yeah. care protocol.
1: Yeah. The mm-hmm. care protocol is science. And then we got into this, the addiction end of things. You know, we have two programs here. We have new Shama, like our regular program. It's more, it's, it's geared towards, uh, more mental health issues and lower levels of addiction. Um, where we, you know, our protocol is actually two infusions. They go through the same medical intake and all that. And uh, then they do two infusions a week over a three-week period. And then a, there's a booster, a seventh booster that happens anywhere from two to six weeks after. And the same integration, less psychotherapy involved. So, but we do the, you know, the preparation and integration after each uh, each experience as well. And then if they need therapy afterwards, you know, some people, you know so we can't force everyone into therapy. Many of our people, many of the members who've come here have been through years of therapy. They sort of know all the theory. The problem is they don't feel it. They don't internalize it. They know what they need to do, but they need to bring this into their heart. I mean, or there's, you know, they have to feel it. And that's what they get. Like they come here and they go, Oh my God, like suddenly I know, like after all those years of therapy, now I understand, like, I feel it rather than just knowing it. You know, sometimes when you go ahead too much, it's, it's intellect. You know, there's something much deeper than intellect. Uh, there's a, a an inner wisdom that's just endless. <laughs> you know, yeah. So.
0: Now, now, you you mentioned you're Canadian, and and there's a an organization, a Canadian organization that's really incredible. That I can't remember the name of the doctor that founded it, but it's the Canadian Alcohol Use Disorder Society. And- oh yeah. Yeah, and they yeah. talk about like there's like five or six different medications that they 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 just want to make doctors aware that that there are medications that can help, you know everything anything from like naltrexone and I I think gabapentin and uh, you know there's uh, mm-hmm. a variety of different things you know that, that can help in different situations and and maybe they should add ketamine to that list, um, right. you know that which would be great but now but that uh, naltrexone is something that um, I wanted to ask you about just to uh, there, there's a, something called the Sinclair method you're, you're right. aware yeah, of. Uh,
1: yeah. So lower, it's like, it's not an alcohol abstinence program. It's, it's sort of more harm reduction where they use low doses yeah. of Trexone with decreased use of, uh, of, of alcohol to, to for moderate use of alcohol. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And then the, the official name, you know, not, not the sensational name of Sinclair method, but the official name is um, uh, pharmacological extinction. You know, that, that you're, you know, it's like the, uh what, what's his name the um what's that that guy the the scientist with the, the salivating dogs uh pavlov yeah, pavlov, you know, yeah. It, it's based on the, on the pavlov's dog you know pavlov being like the first russian to ever win a uh a nobel prize you know for his experiment with dogs and ringing a bell and they salivate and the second part of the experiment was you know let, let's uh keep ringing the bell but never give them the, the treat anymore or the food and eventually they, they salivate less mm-hmm. and this sinclair method i get as as a Take the pill and it blocks the opioid uh, flood of endorphins, and and they take a drink. You know that naltrexone plus alcohol. Little by little, they drink less and less and less. Is um, is is your protocol is a care protocol or ketamine therapy? Can can that uh, complement? Can those two complement each other? Can a person do both of those? The Sinclair method and ketamine therapy.
1: Yeah, I like them to be off. Not there is some type of yeah. I I they can. I mean, I don't see why they're not. You know. You know, I'll tell you with ketamine. It is it more of an experience in the drug itself. I mean, the drug definitely has some biochemical or neurochemical effects on the brain, but it's just you know what I find. Everyone comes in here and says that like they just don't feel like they like that the ketamine is no longer like it doesn't serve them anymore. Like I don't think you need the naltrexone with this. I, I mean, it could be used as an adjunct. I wouldn't use it while you're on it, but I'm fine with that. But I think it just gets to a point where you realize who you are. And the, it's, it's almost the antithesis of the psychedelic experience. When you get in touch with who you are, you realize like, why would I drink something that's going to inhibit that? Like, it's almost like that. Like, wow, it's like, yeah. it doesn't make sense. I mean, myself, I, like I've done a number of, you know, different psychedelic experiences, including ketamine. And I don't do that often. <laughs> I, you know, I try to, and, and I find like I can't drink. Like, I don't, I, not that I can't. I just don't. I'm not drawn to it at all. I was never a big drinker, but I I enjoyed it. I would drink, you know, as, as anyone else, and now I'll do it, you know, in a social setting. But it just doesn't serve me. I I, I can't describe it, but I don't. The high from it is not. It, it's actually doesn't. It actually makes me feel worse. So yeah. I you know, I still enjoy like I like the taste of wine sometimes. You know, when you're eating or. meal but even that like i rarely even get wine now i I just don't have a taste for it it's the weirdest thing and a lot of people it's not that's a very common theme you know so yeah yeah i it'd be interesting i don't know the studies i don't know enough about the sinclair method i know about it but i don't you know it's not something I to prescribe
0: yeah ideally a person should shouldn't be drinking a a huge amount of alcohol like you said ideally you'd like them detox first um and, and that's another interesting thing that you know we've worked with a lot of people with alcohol detox where we we safely get them off of alcohol you know doing a, a detox protocol and 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 they're great you know for a while you know they're they're like wow i'm alcohol free i feel great back to normal and get back to life again and at some point it, it hits them the you know the the cravings you know it comes back whether it's days weeks or months out out after their uh, detox but um and they can either have a good support system and deal with it, you know, going to therapy, going to support meetings, having people to talk to, you know, finding ways to to not take that first drink. But sometimes those cravings can be overwhelming. And um, but but you're offering something that a person can do can do after detox. You know, they go through yeah. the detox, and now a couple of days after, now they can can go and do the care protocol.
1: Right, they do the care protocol, and then we also give them, you know, there's techniques and 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 they we give them tools that they can use also when they do have the crave, the cravings come up to identify them and to replace it with other tools, even breath techniques. And there's, some of them are so simple, but so powerful. Even when I like, I mean, you know, when you're triggered and you see a piece of cake, just take a deep breath. Like you breathe in four seconds to hold the breath and then the breath hold, you just, you have, you have free will to decide like, how am I going to, do I really need that cake? <laughs> <laughs> like I can go to it and automatically eat it. But if I take a deep breath and hold it, ma- just even that few seconds like i don't know i really don't need it and then you just walk away from it just yeah. like a few seconds of free will like i choose rather than reactively going and eating the cake or having the drink or something through instagram i choose if i choose the yeah. cake I choose it. that's fine i choose a drink but at least i have free will i think that's the problem is we feel like we don't have free will we don't have we're reactive it's, it's sort of this automatic you know program in our brain that's making us do these things but we're more than that and we can yeah. step out yeah um,
0: yeah, there there's a uh technique people can take home with them right now. Anyone listening right now. Uh next time you're about to do anything uh pleasurable that you know you might be questionable as far as it's uh if it's gonna benefit you or benefit you or not, whether it's like eating the cupcake or going on social media, uh taking another drink, um hold your breath. Uh take up take not hold your breath, take it deep. Four seconds
1: breath. in four like they call it the four seven eight breath. It's like four seconds in, hold. So four seconds in, you hold your breath for seven seconds, and then you slowly let it over eight. And it doesn't have to be exact. You don't have to count the, you know, to to the the T, but, and it just, it actually activates our parasympathetic nervous system, our nervous system that's more relaxed. So we're out of this fight or flight mode. And when we're in fight or flight, like this sort of adrenaline mode, you know, our body needs, our our brain needs to work in a very efficient way. If we have a bear in front of us, you know, and we can't start thinking, oh, is this brown bear, black bear? Is this going to hit me? We need to act, you know? So yeah. our brain goes into these automatic, very efficient ways of reacting to that situation. But most of the time when we don't, need, we have time, we can respond, you yeah. know, we're always in this sort of, when we're in a stress mode, we're in, when we're really stressed out, our brain is automatically in this more efficient mode in this more reactive mode. So we could pull ourselves out by some of these techniques. So we can pull ourselves out into this, get our parasympathetic, our nervous system more balanced into a relaxing state so we can... We can choose we can have choice in how we respond to any situation so yeah
0: yeah it sounds like that i don't know if it's the same thing but i, I was reading about this thing called polyvagal theory of mm-hmm. uh accessing the vagus nerve to to get out of fight or flight and get into like a feeling of safety
1: yeah i think it's exactly when you take the deep breath and you hold it it does activate the vagus nerve so it does yeah it works along those uh yeah oh that's
0: oh that's really that's really incredible um so, yeah, just to finish up, t- uh, how can people get in touch with you or, or get started if someone's interested in, in the program at uh, at Nushama?
1: Yeah, so they can reach us. They can look us up online at uh, nushama N-U-S-H-A-M-A, nushama.com, Um, Or they can reach us at our, uh, you know, our phone number is, I don't know if I, <laughs> or you're going to post it. It's 646-394-9996. Uh, 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 I hope I got that right. But uh, you can go to our website and there's a lot of information on our website. Great, uh, you know, blogs and that can really give you some information about not only the, the care program, which is really important for addiction, but also our regular program, which also works for lower states of addiction, less acute forms of, of alcohol use disorder, but other types of addictions. And I consider them all. I mean, I think something through Instagram could be like heroin almost. <laughs> you know, if you see someone coming through Instagram for four hours, they look like they're completely in another world, Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, uh, and I, I usually consider myself immune to that because I don't really have much interest in social media. But the other day, caught myself doing it for like almost an hour. I'm like, oh, I can't believe an hour just went by. Like, what am I doing? You know, this is really, these, these things are getting more and more refined. You know, it's like like the crack cocaine of uh, of internet
1: now. It's like with these
0: social media things.
1: You know, it's well programmed. It, it knows how we think and it takes advantage of that. So, yeah. Yeah. So,
0: um, okay, Dr. Steven Radowitz, thank you again for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.